0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 90. Last week, I covered the census and accompanying tax, along with the first batch of anointing oil, all laid out in this part of Exodus. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering Bezuel and Oholiab, the tablets where the Ten Commandments along with the Mosaic Covenant were written, and the golden calf. And with that, let's get started. I'll begin with the two men designated specifically by God to lead the construction of the tent of meeting, and everything within, found in Exodus chapter 31. These two chosen men are Bezuel and Oholiab. Before getting to the individuals, first what God said to Moses, from the New Revised Standard Version. See, I have called by name Bezuel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with divine spirit, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, in every kind of craft. Moreover, I have appointed with him a holyab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given skill to all the skillful, so that they may make all that I have commanded you. End quote. First, to Bezuel. Between the two, Bezuel has been traditionally viewed as the leader, with assistance provided by Aholiab. The only other place his name appears is in the genealogical records in First Chronicles and Ezra. He does get a mention in Second Chronicles, but only as the builder of the bronze altar, so no new information there. In the outside record, meaning outside of the Old Testament, in cuneiform script records, there was a king of Gaza with a variant of this name. It's thought that this king ruled around the time of both Hezekiah and Manasseh, so in the 8th and 7th centuries BC but this would have been many centuries after the Exodus. So, not the same person, and likely merely a coincidence, are named for the builder in Exodus. Rabbinical writings fill in many of the gaps of knowledge concerning the craftsman. One such bit has God asking Moses if his choices of workers were agreeable to Moses. Moses responded that, Lord, if he is acceptable to thee, Surely he must be so to me. My advice is if the Almighty ever asks you a similar question, quote Moses. Then God directed Moses to ask the Israelite people if they approved. And they did. After that, Moses ordered Bezuel to get to work. In my mind, I do notice that something is missing. No one ever asked Bezuel. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Other parts of rabbinical tradition hold that Bezuel was extremely wise and intelligent and provided a few examples of this wisdom. Obviously, he was capable of designing and building a sanctuary fit enough to be inhabited by God himself. Not only that, the writers concentrated on the complicated candlestick, the menorah. It was so complicated that not even Moses could understand it even after God showed him a heavenly model, twice. But Moses described it, as best he could to Bezuel, who grasped it immediately. Then there are other bits from rabbis. Some claim that Bezuel was only 13 years old when he began, and that his wisdom was, at least partly, inherited from his parents, along with his grandfather Hur, and his great-grandmother Miriam. If this genealogy is correct, This would have made him the grand-nephew of Moses. And that's it for Bezuel. We know far less about his assistant, Oholiab, which is how those things usually go. He was the son of Ahizamach, which also made him from the tribe of Dan. Exodus 38 describes him as being an engraver, designer, an embroiderer, in blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and in fine linen. Rashi said he was from the lowest of the tribes, and was the son of a handmaiden, all of this to position him as being assumed to have been incapable of assisting with such a great project. Keep in mind that Oholiab's boss, Bezuel, was of Judah, which was regarded as the highest of the tribes, a lion among lambs. Rashi would then say this was to prove the point that all were essentially equal in the eyes of God. This may have been a bit of foreshadowing, as when Solomon built his great temple, the project was led by a Danite, still regarded as the lowest of the tribes. And that's it for Hoholiab. The next section in Exodus 31 concerns the law of the Sabbath, and is simply a more verbose rendering of the parallel commandment found in the Ten or so Commandments. I've touched on this a bit in the past, so there's really nothing to add here and I'll keep moving along, which gets me to the stone tablets themselves. The text is really succinct on the subject, recording that when God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and that's a quote. The footnotes of the New Revised also note that the original Hebrew could be interpreted as the tablets of treaty, and also the tablets of testimony. The NIV only calls them the two tablets of the covenant law, and the King James titles them the two tables of testimony, several names for the two iconic stone tablets. And, these were the same tablets that Moses would smash in the next chapter when angered by the Israelites in their embrace of the golden calf. More on that in a bit. Skipping ahead a bit just to keep the narrative focused on the tablets. In chapter 34, Moses would recut stone tablets and took them up to God who rewrote the commandments. Both the old, now broken tablets and the new, unbroken ones would be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. About these tablets of stone, every rendering I can recall presents them as being a stone that I would liken to grey granite round on the top and square on the bottom. But this isn't the traditional, meaning, older view. In the Talmud, they were made of blue sapphire stone. This was said to be a symbolic reminder of the sky, meaning the heavens, and therefore a reference to God's throne. The source of this belief is the use of the word sapir. Other rabbinical scholars believe the word is more correctly interpreted as lapis lazuli, which is also blue, but not as clear as sapphire. Either way, not grey granite. And that's not the only inconsistency. The view we, or at least I associate with the tablets, is that they are rounded on top. But according to rabbinic tradition, they were rectangles with four sharp corners. Older depictions, one case being a 3rd century AD painting, shows the tablets in this form. The rounded form didn't make an appearance until the Middle Ages. It's thought this was due to the writing tablets of that era being of a similar size and shape and hinged between the two sides. These tablets tended to be wood on the outside and had a layer of wax inside and used a stylus to write in the wax. Wax that could be easily melted so that the tablets could be reused. Their version of an eraser Or the delete button. But not everyone embraced this shape. Michelangelo depicted the tablets as being wholly square, and also about the same size as rabbinic tradition. After him, Rembrandt went with the rounded top, but kept the size roughly consistent with Michelangelo's. Curiously, their contemporary rabbis approved of their depictions, not because they thought they were to resemble the originals, but because they didn't the rabbis didn't believe that the facsimiles should be too accurate as this would profane the originals what did these rabbis think the originals looked like they were square roughly 20 by 20 inches or 50 by 50 centimeters and 10 inches or 25 centimeters thick if granite well really any stone that's a heavy tablet so rough, well really very rough math, has each tablet, if granite, weighing about 400 pounds or 181 kilograms. I looked but couldn't find any reasonable and believable weight for such a large sapphire or lapis lazuli stone. But even if its density is half that of granite, it still would be extremely heavy, assuming the rabbis had the dimensions correct. This may be one of the many reasons later depictions show tablets much thinner than 10 inches. One other bit about the tablets. Rabbinic tradition also proposed that the tablets did not merely have the commandments carved on the surface, but that the engraving went all the way through the stone, all 10 inches of its thickness. There is a bit of disagreement in Jewish tradition about what was on each tablet, One side holds that each of the two tablets had five of the Ten Commandments written on it, which is how they are traditionally depicted in the Christian tradition. But another view is that each tablet had the entire set of commandments written on it. So why the duplication? This stems from the text establishing a covenant between God and the Israelites that would have been similar to treaties between different countries at the time. By way of example, With the diplomatic treaties between ancient Egypt and other contemporary nations, a copy was made for each party. But in my mind, if this were true of the commandments, Moses wouldn't have brought both copies down from Sinai, as God would have kept one of them. One final thing. There is the thought that the tablets not only contain the commandments, but additional portions of the covenant, like what some view as the preamble, Essentially, Exodus 20 verse 1, that reads, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Outside of the Old Testament, tablets do get a mention in the Islamic Quran, where it's acknowledged that God gave the tablets to Moses. The Muslim holy book authored by Muhammad does not list the specific commandments but does record that they contain the laws for him in the tablets in all matters, both commanding and explaining all things, and said, Take and hold these with firmness, and enjoin thy people to hold fast by the best and the precepts. Soon shall I show you the homes of the wicked. End quote. In the Quran, Moses does not break the tablets, but is assumed to have set them down to be recovered later. Again quoting, When Moses came back to his people, angry and grieved, he said, Evil it is that ye have done in my place in my absence. Did ye make haste to bring on the judgment of your Lord? He put down the tablets, seized his brother by the hair of his head, and dragged him to him. Later, the Quran records that, when the anger of Moses was appeased, he took up the tablets, in the writing thereon was guidance and mercy, for such as fear their Lord, end quote. And that's it for the tablets. At the end of the narrative in the Old Testament, when God gives Moses the two tablets, we're told of how Moses stayed on Sinai for forty days and forty nights. The assumption is that Joshua was up there with him, if not in the presence of God, at least nearby, which gets me to the golden calf, According to the text, quoting, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Pausing for a second, there is something extremely important that needs to be pointed out. Moses ascended the mountain in Exodus 24, and everything from Exodus 25 until this point happened between God and Moses. Moses had not yet returned to the people, and had been up there for over a month. All the instructions given by God about the tent, the ark, the altars, the priest, all of that was still only between God and Moses. Aaron and everyone else had yet to be brought in the loop. So, from their perspective, Moses was gone and God was silent. Essentially, over the course of the 40 days, they lost faith. Don't misinterpret this as me making excuses. I'm just pointing out what happened from a different perspective. And before I unpause, note that the next person in the narrative is Aaron, who God had designated as the High Priest, but at this time, this was only known to God and Moses. Aaron didn't know this, at least not yet, unpausing and picking back up in the text, but for the sake of at least a little bit of brevity, I'll paraphrase. Aaron has the people bring him their gold rings. He then makes a mold, melts the rings, and forms the molten gold into a golden calf. The people then say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron builds an altar before the calf and proclaims, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. Notice that the people use the plural form of gods, while Aaron uses the singular Lord. The next day there were burnt offerings and sacrifices, along with eating, drinking, and a bit of a party. God notices what's going on and commands Moses to descend Sinai. Then the Lord tells Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. Moses pleads with God, saying, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever." End the quote of Moses. And his argument worked with God changing his mind. Moses departs with the tablets in hand and heads down the mountain. We're told that the tablets had writing on both front and back, which could mean that they were essentially four pages of text or they were carved all the way through. As they approach the camp, Joshua speaks up, which serves a couple of purposes. First, it's a literary device that lets us know he was still with Moses. It also tells us a bit about what's going on in the camp. Joshua says, there is a noise of war in the camp. It's not the sound made by victors, or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. So he hears the party we were told of earlier. The pair gets closer and sees the dancing along with the calf, and Moses is furious. It was then that he threw down the two tablets, breaking them at the foot of the mountain. Moses then gets creative, seizing the calf and burning it in a fire. He then grinds it into a powder, scatters this powder in water, and makes the Israelites drink this polluted water. Moses then approaches his brother Aaron, saying, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron answers, Do not let the anger of my lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are bent on evil. They said to me, Make us gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Quote. It was Aaron's woman-made-me-do-it moment. Out came this calf, conveniently forgetting about making the mold. Moses stands at the gate of the camp and addresses the people. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Some say this shows that the Levites did not worship the calf at all. Even before this moment, he tells the sons of Levi, quoting, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day." Quote. The next day, Moses addressed the whole of the people, saying, You have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he returns to God, telling the Almighty, This people have sinned a great sin, They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. God responds, saying, Whoever has sinned against me I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. The chapter ends with a plague hitting the Israelites. So, about this calf and the entire incident, which is sometimes called the sin of the calf. Before the Israelites departed Egypt, the Egyptians were already engaging in the worship of bulls. In their case, the apis bull. I covered this topic a while back as part of Egyptian history. And this practice wasn't confined to Egypt as many cultures in that place and time worshipped the male bovine. And this isn't the only place in the Old Testament where a golden calf makes an appearance. In 1 Kings chapter 12, after Jeroboam establishes the northern kingdom of Israel, he sought to separate his kingdom from that of Judah. To keep the people from pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, he has two golden calves made for the people to worship, telling them, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Eerily similar to what the people said in Exodus at the creation of the first golden calf, these guys should really have studied their history, but they didn't have podcasts. One of these calves is placed in Bethel and the other in Dan. I'll pause Jeroboam's history here and circle back at some point in the future. Finally, outside of the Old Testament, the incident does merit a mention in the Islamic Quran. In it, the narrative tells that after the Israelites refused to enter Canaan, God punished them with another 40 years of wandering. During this time, Moses would continue to lead the Israelites to Mount Sinai for divine guidance. One of these times, God ordered Moses to fast for 30 days. During the fasting period, and near its conclusion, Moses ate a scented plant, thinking it was a cure for his bad breath. God then told Moses to fast for an additional ten days. Only after that would God give Moses instruction. All throughout this period, when Moses was on the mountain, Aaron was left in charge of the people. So far, the story is a little similar to that in Exodus, with the Israelites growing restless, since Moses had not returned. Next in the Quran, a man named Samiri raised doubts among the Israelites. Samiri claimed that Moses had abandoned the Israelites and ordered his followers to light a fire and bring him all the gold they had. He then made a calf from the gold, combining it with dust on which the angel Gabriel had walked. He then tells the people that the calf is the God of Moses, and also the God that guided them out of Egypt. The Quran claims that Aaron warned the people not to worship the calf. The righteous then separated themselves from the calf-worshipping pagans. Moses returns and asks Aaron why he didn't stop the people from sinning. Aaron responds that he did not act due to the fear that Moses would blame him for causing division among the Israelites. Moses then realized his personal helplessness in the situation, and both he and his brother prayed to God for forgiveness. After this prayer, Moses turns to Samiri, asking for an explanation. Samiri attempts to justify his actions by claiming that he had thrown the dust of the ground on which Gabriel walked into the fire, because his soul had suggested it to him. The explanation didn't work and Samiri was banished from the people. The calf was burned and its dust spread into the sea. Moses then had 70 men repent to God and pray for forgiveness. The men accompanied Moses to Mount Sinai, where they witnessed the speech between Moses and God. Even so, the men refused to believe God was present unless they saw him with their own eyes. For this sin, God struck the delegates with lightning and killed them with a violent earthquake. Moses prayed to God for the Israelites' forgiveness. God did forgive them and set them out on their continued journey. In Islam, the calf worshippers committed the sins of idolatry and polytheism, essentially the deification or worship of anything or anyone other than their god. In that religion, such sin is especially serious and unforgivable. Despite this, they were forgiven, a sign of a special mercy extended by God. And that's the golden calf, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with Exodus 33 and the Israelites departing Mount Sinai. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.